The goal of Data Transformers podcast is to accelerate digital transformation by bridging the gap between business outcomes and rapidly advancing technologies. And we aim to bridge this gap by focusing on data. I am Peggy Sai, top 50 women in tech influencer, co-author of the AI book and data governance expert. I'm Ramesh Danta, an entrepreneur, a tech blogger, and AI enthusiast. Vin Vashista is the chief data scientist at Data by V Squared, editor at the ML Rebellion, and LinkedIn's top voice for 2019. Vin, welcome. Thanks for having me. This is part two of our continuing discussion with Vin Vashista. Vin is an instigator, is an instigator, right? So yes. some of the, uh, I don't know if you look at that, uh, because some of the areas you've been instigating for the right reasons is the hiring practices, mm-hmm. right? In terms of uh, what are the requirements people, the companies put in, right? It, uh, that's one area that you say, that's one aspect of it. The second thing you also do is you give career advice to people, aspiring people, how they should interview, you know, what they should position, right? So, uh, so let, let's get into that discussion a little bit because that seems to be, the sweet spot that you know you know, you you've become known uh, on the LinkedIn top voice and things like that. So talk a little bit about what are you seeing in the hiring practices? Is it changing? Uh, number one, and then number two is based on these things. What advice would you give to people to want to come into data science in, in, in this area? It's funny. Thirty minutes ago, I was, or forty-five minutes ago, I was actually writing a post where <laughs> I covered part of this. Um, and this is actually back to some of the things that we've already touched on and covered. A job description is a recommendation and it's typically poorly built, poorly constructed, and the rules are fudgeable. They're bendable. They're, they're you know, flexible is the wrong word, but when you look at who gets hired into data science versus who we all talk about getting hired versus all the surveys that look at the job opportunity as the Oracle, you find out that who gets hired and what the job description says have this very large gap. And this post that I'm writing actually used two examples of that gap. One is education. Uh, you'll often see master's PhD and who gets hired as a bachelor's or sometimes a master's. You'll see master's in computer science requirement. And the person who gets hired has a master's in physics or a master's in a different type of engineering field. Hmm. You will see two to three years of data science experience, but the person who ends up getting hired is an analyst. They use some some type of data analyst role, and there's a lot of different job titles there. So meaning data analysts is really broad. You'll see people who are research assistants get hired straight out of academia into machine learning and data science. So my first piece of advice is look at that job requirement document and look at it for capabilities because a hiring manager will look at your resume for capabilities. And if you have active language, which really describes the fact that you can build, that you can make, that you can do rather than knowledge of, you are capable of rather than having knowledge of. And that's the type of experience that you want to be getting, whether that's independent project work, whether that's an internship 
whether that's a structured research project that you work you know, in a larger group on and you publish, any of those are valid, but you have to put it into your resume in such a way that you are using language to explain your capabilities. And that's my biggest advice to anyone going into the field. Step one, look at your job description as there are capabilities in there that the company is looking for. Mm-hmm. Figure out what capabilities they're looking for. Ask yourself, have I done work that sounds like this? Have I used any of the same capabilities? And how can I make my resume show that I have the capability of doing this job? Not that I have the skills, not that I have Python, not that I have you know, NoSQL or Spark or whatever. Not that I have those, don't list those, it doesn't matter. Talk about capabilities. What can you build? What sort of impact could you have? And do you have a product focus? That's just this huge ball of best advice that I can give someone Mm. going into the field is to understand hiring managers are flexible. And as soon as they read that language, that active language that talks about capabilities and describes what you as an individual can do, even if you have not done that in a company yet, if you describe yourself as capable of doing the job, you have a lot higher chance of getting it. Can you give some specific examples of like, words that display capability? Um, typically, it's skill verb combinations. And I'm going to try not to sound like a dork. <laughs> Too much of a good data wonk here. <laughs> but you're, you're looking for things like uh, words like Python and built. If you see those in the same sentence, you're typically looking at someone describing a capability. Um, model a model name like decision trees or gender of adversarial network scans and something like train and something like validation or validated improvement. If you see two different in the same section, if you see two different model types and something like tried improved, those sort of combinations in one section seem to correlate. And again, I'm kind of pushing the edge here because I'm I'm really looking at profiles from people that have been hired Mm -hmm. and making the assumption that this language somehow got them hired, which is ahead of my skis. But it seems like there's a consistent theme to the way that people who get hired from outside of data science into the field talk about their skills and talk about sort of using this active language where you have skill verb and the verb is really tying you to an outcome, tying you to a product, tying you to something tangible where skill verb and then outcome create this, uh, I don't know, language of capability. Like I said, I'm, I'm ahead of my skis by saying that this is what causes you to get hired because I don't know that. Yeah. But it seems like that active language is something that hiring managers, and I can say anecdotally, and especially for me, I hear these cues and I say, yeah, that's what I'm looking for. That that right there has potential. So when actually listening to you, it seems as if you've spent your entire life on studying this kind of stuff and, and then giving this advice. But I know personally, because I have I've seen you for the last three, four years, you've evolved, right? Uh, you, you are not talking about these things four years ago, as, as uh, from what I remember, right? So let's talk a little bit about your journey, right? 
and then you also wrote something about personal journey. Hey, you know, I'm not PhD. I'm not this. I'm not from that college. You know, but it doesn't matter, right? I mean, it's it's a really very illuminating kind of material you put out there. So. Well, how, how did you start uh, out of college? Then what did you get into? Then what, what was the evolution like? Um, let me, sorry, I need some water. Yeah, go ahead. Let me start with today because a lot of the content you see is not a lot of the, not a lot of the area of focus that I have right now. And I have to speak backwards. And this is something that I've, I've figured out early in my career um, that a lot of times if I talk about what I'm working on right now, I'm speaking past people and I can't really talk to a large audience. Like right now, I just published a post on adversarial machine learning. I'm going to do an entire series on adversarial machine learning. I'm also going to be doing another series on causal ML. Mm -hmm. And that's for maybe 200 people right now. And in two or three years, this will be far more significant and far more important. And so if you walk my career backwards, it makes a whole lot more sense from that perspective. So I found very, very early on in my career, if I talk about what I'm doing right now, no one gets it. No yeah. one's listening. Because for most people, most companies and individuals, it's not relevant. Yeah. They're not quite there yet. And they're not at the point where they want to prepare for that. And that's been my whole career is I went to school fell in love with machine learning because Microsoft gave UNR a grant to do some, some machine learning research and they started giving us courses on it. And I fell in love with it. I thought I was going to graduate and go work for Microsoft. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that first, well, it was actually the second. Uh, it, it was one of multiple waves that fizzled out in, in artificial intelligence and machine learning. So I worked for the companies that were available. I had a little business that I was running. I did everything from web design to installing servers, configuring PCs, putting antivirus on PCs, yeah. I did cabling. I know how to crimp cables. That, that's a rare data science skill. <laughs> if, anybody, if anybody needs a data scientist who can also build you a network closet, I, you know, <laughs> it's a unique crossover. And so that kind of gives you an idea of my early career was just walking with technology, but you know, my, my sites were always on something in front of me. Like I, I did that basic sort of tech work and I wanted to get into quality assurance. I got into quality assurance, was doing QA, was leading teams, but I wanted to be a software developer. So I got into, you know, I went from QA into software developer and then I said DevOps and then mm ran a very large cross-functional team, did a little bit of project, agile project product management, went to pod, traditional product management strategy. I've always been looking at the next role and mm. it took me a long time to realize that was great. I just couldn't say it out loud because if I did, everyone thought it was nuts. I told somebody in 2009 that I wanted to do, you know, a deep dive into customer analytics and start doing some behavioral modeling on customers. And I still remember this. We were at lunch and he was across the table looking at me like, am I working with a crazy person? And that's, so I've learned to shut up in some cases because I'm not talking, I'm thinking about the next thing. If I can tell anyone something about what do you want to do in your career journey? 
don't say it all the time, but think about your next step and always be looking at what you want to do next. And don't make that about what you're doing now. Think about what you're doing now is expendable. At some point, it is going to become less and less valuable to a business. So think about what you're going to do in five years from now. And that's been my entire career journey. Hmm. It's, it's a very interesting approach to being very uh, futuristic. Um, and actually thinking about the future, um, I'd love to have your thoughts on what other trends or major impacts or events do you think is going to happen in either machine learning or within a, you know, the data, the, the data science world? Um, I haven't said anything crazy yet today, so let me. Yeah, you have to say something crazy, otherwise the wind brand will will not um, will degrade. Survive. Yeah, I've got to say something that nobody understands, everybody hates, and then two years everybody's saying it doesn't give you credit for. Yeah, yeah let me say something like that. <laughs> um, first big trend, and I don't know how controversial this is going to be, but I don't think it's on enough people's radars. Adversarial machine learning has massive impacts on recommender systems. Actually, uh, Vin, uh, let me start. first, can you explain for people who don't, sure. who don't know what that is? Let, let's go through that explanation. Uh, sorry, adversarial machine learning is essentially information security or cybersecurity for models. Models are vulnerable to a number of different attacks. Mm -hmm. This concept of an attack surface is really looking at model development as a, a giant data pipeline. And I can attack at so many different points in that pipeline. I can inject poisonous data. I can look at your data gathering and figure out how to inject data. This was actually done very recently during this campaign. Um, there was one party who was holding a campaign rally and they had an open online signup. They said, anybody who wants to sign up, you know, just go online, register for the event and you'll, you know, we'll send you tickets in the email. And, I think it was something like 25,000 people yeah. all signed up. Hmm. Oddly enough, they were all K-pop fans yeah. who bombarded the, you know, the data gathering operation. And this data is all invalid. And so every other piece of analytics that's built on top of it is corrupted. They attacked the data gathering, the analytics and the machine learning and it was an effective attack. These types of attacks are happening all the time. The other end of the pipeline, you can inject results. And you hear this a lot with the car, you know, that doesn't recognize the stop sign or a person that's identified, misclassified as an animal. And so you can find these edge cases. And like I said, I wrote a post about it. If you want to get really deep into it, you can check it out on the MLRebellion.com. But adversarial machine learning is essentially information security to harden and secure models against attacks either to the data pipeline on the front end or to force some sort of controlled error to happen that the attacker wants uh, to essentially accomplish some sort of malicious purpose. And when I talk about recommender systems, if you look at Twitter's um, content recommender, your entire timeline is based on a content recommender algorithm. And there's something very interesting that happens when two machine learning models meet and start communicating with each other. Mm. 
you don't always know they're communicating with each other. At first, they're unaware of each other. They, they work and they don't actually touch data-wise. And so the data output from one and the actions from one don't touch the other. But they're actually two complex systems. And when they begin to interact with each other, they do something very, very interesting. At first, they collaborate. And that's where we are with recommender systems and adversarial attacks, is the adversarial attacks, the adversarial models, these bots are meant to collaborate with the content recommender engines mm. and feed content that is, you know, weaponizing people, for lack of a better term. And people themselves are very bad at figuring out what data is adversarial for them to change and impact their machine learning model and what data isn't, what data is legitimate. And so you're seeing the vulnerability of recommender systems. This is going to be a huge trend. Adversarial machine learning is going to fo force every social media company. And also think about it. Amazon has recommender engine that you that shows you all these products down at the bottom bar. Yeah. That can be gained. It can be attacked in the same way that Twitter's content recommender can be attacked. And there are all of these sort of attacks that there's just researchers just starting to publish on where you see vulnerabilities to recommender systems. That's gonna be a huge, huge theme because it opens the floodgate to understanding how much of what we have on the internet relies on models and how vulnerable those models are to attacks we haven't even thought of yet, let alone figured out how to defend against because this whole concept of collaborative where an attacking model and the other, the model, I guess, being attacked. And in the case of a recommender system, you're not really attacking. They're collaborating. Yeah. This is what the recommender was intended to do, serve content that people love and people want to engage with and then serve more and different content and find this unique content that people want to engage with more. And so you're selling ads. And so these are collaborative while still being adversarial. That's going to be a huge theme going forward mm. because what happens after collaboration when two machine learning models interact with each other and you get past the collaborative state where one model is then in, the concept is introduced, you must win. You are competing, not collaborating. And that's where we're going with recommender systems is now we are competing against these models to figure out who's a bot, what's fake, what is harmful, destructive uh, content moderation, what is you know, objectionable material. They're now going to start to conflict. They're gonna start competing against each other. The dangerous piece is let's light something on fire. What comes after that is adversarial hmm. models attacking each other organically. Not a hacker. They're just going to go attack each other. Hmm. That has more really frightening implications. And so that's kind of a, that's the progression that we want to watch when it comes to security. And the big inflammatory thing I can say. A lot of technology relies on constant connectivity to uh, devices, websites, everything. Machine learning and better storage and compute at the edge is going to negate the need for that. If you can predict things enough, and if you have enough memory storage, you don't need to be constantly connected to everything. You'd have the internet in one place, or at least all of the relevant internet in one place. And so any technology that relies on or any company that relies on constant connectivity mm. might be in trouble. Mm. 
So actually, Vin, um, as we come into the, uh, the final stage of this podcast, there are two things I want to touch upon. One is uh, this uh, you know, inequality between companies, because we are still in the early stages of this whole machine learning and artificial intelligence kind of stuff, but there's some companies have really advanced themselves, right? Um, mm-hmm. Both in models as well as the data. Uh, and of course, we, we know about Google collecting data every day. So they've advanced on both fronts. And there are companies who don't even know what it is, right? So the inequality keeps growing. So what is the advice that you would give to companies to you know, start using uh, you know, machine learning, both with, with respect to data, um, and like what is the thing that they should be doing? And, and both, uh, secondly, with respect to increasing the capability on the modeling and that kind of stuff? Uh, there's an interesting concept that the Fed has done some research over the last couple of years on, which is called business dynamism. I'm sorry, business and what? Dynamism. Mm. And this is the concept of new ideas and new intellectual property coming into a business. And there has been a trend since the 80s of consolidation of new technologies, new technical capabilities, new intellectual property. And there's been this trend of consolidation, and that's what you're talking about, how you have these frontier companies, and that's the word that they use. You have these frontier companies, and knowledge is not trickling into other companies. It's being consolidated in Googles, in Facebooks, in even Walmarts. You look at Walmarts, you look at a JP Morgan. These companies are consolidating knowledge and intellectual property under one roof, and the impacts of that are exactly what you've talked about. Now you have these laggard companies, which going back to what we were talking about with monetization, figuring out, are you a machine learning first company? Mm-hmm. Are you in that sort of legacy business model? If you're in that legacy business model, you're in a very, very interesting place because you may be competing with a company who has all of this sort of knowledge that's not coming out. It's mm-hmm. not going to come out and help you compete with that company. So if they enter your marketplace, yeah. they have a massive competitive advantage. Definitely. And so as a company with that thesis, and it's not mine, like I said, it's the feds, I'm not, that's not my idea, don't, don't give me credit for it. Um, with that thesis, you as a company now have to understand that you're not gonna be able to do what they do. You have to do something else. Yeah. You have to truly innovate, you overuse that word. But this is a time where if you want to remain competitive, if you want to stay in business, you have to innovate. You have to understand. And the, the crazy thing I said in the last question really plays here is the fundamental concept that Google operates on is consistent connectivity. If you didn't need to search for things, what is Google? If you don't need constant connectivity, if the cloud, the concept of the cloud is different, fundamentally different. And so connectivity, new information, a lot of these things, machine learning algorithms are going to get to the point in the next 10 years where I don't know that we need access to everyone's website at the same time. Why? If you know what products are out there and you can predict the price of a given product, a buying decision is simply you saying, I need this, what's the best price? And instead of there being a constant connectivity, the model just predicts what the best price is. Mm assumes it and it's so accurate it just tells you hey here's the price we'd like to purchase it. yes goes out now it's more like a stock transaction where you're saying i want 30 shares of this 
here's my max price. And you don't need this constant connectivity to the market. You've placed an order, it goes in, and all of these parameters are already baked in. And you do not need this constant connectivity anymore. That's where you have the opportunity to innovate. As a company, if you can look at the core technology that a business, even a Titan, has based itself on, and if you can undermine that, that's where you begin to innovate, really innovate. And you can disrupt even the biggest companies. Everyone's vulnerable because they've made some assumption. Amazon's business model functions under multiple assumptions. And if you can undermine one of those assumptions, you can compete against them. That's not easy. I'm oversimplifying it, but that is not easy to undermine this whole concept of the connected web and take it to the edge in a way where Google no longer has an advantage. Mm. That's as hard as it sounds. That's, I mean, that is a, an insanely complex concept, but the company that does that is the next Google. So there are fundamental assumptions in every business model. And those are sort of the defensive horizon of any company, no matter how big, no matter how advanced. And if you can get on the other side of that horizon, if you can undermine that advantage, you can compete. Wow, that's really being able to um, think in the future. And I know we only have a few minutes left in our podcast today, Vin. I just wanted to um, maybe have you explain your LinkedIn's top voice. Uh, um, look, want, just want to quickly understand, how did you get that honor and title? Because uh, I can certainly understand it after hearing um, you speak today, but you know, I'm just curious um, how someone um, gets to receive those uh, that um, that accolade from LinkedIn. Uh, I have no idea. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I wish, I wish must I be writing on LinkedIn then. I have no idea. The first okay. top ten list that I got on was in 2015. Oh. And from then to today, I have no idea. How? Yeah, I'm on these lists. You don't know the algorithm. He doesn't know the algorithm. Why people that are? I look up to these people. Some of these, like the earliest lists I was on, was with uh, Carla Gentry, Kirk Bourne, and and some people who taught me how to do data science, who were the thought leaders that have influenced me even today. I have no idea how I'm on the list with these people. They they are so far beyond you know, as far as their capabilities, what they've done, what they've contributed to the field. Yeah. I don't belong in that same list. And so I'm honored every time I'm put on one of these. And if I could say anything to somebody who wants to be on these lists, just don't worry about it. Yeah. Have something valuable to share, just share it. Share. So then actually a follow up on Peggy's question, which is that what has it done to you, right? In terms of your visibility, in terms of your uh, ability to influence or even ability to, I don't know, um, monetize as well. Was it, uh, did it, uh, was it a factor? Um, it's definitely grown my reach. It's grown my audience. Um, it's grown my visibility. As far as my business, it's like I said, from a business perspective, what I work on and what I do with larger companies is not really what I'm talking about or doing today. Yeah. And so, and I find every time I go outside of my lane, like in 2015, I had a different lane. In 2017, it was a very strategic strategy focused lane. And then in 2018 and 2019, it was a very 
educational, uh, you know, how to break into the field, how to, how to learn data science, how to hire is kind of where I've gone as well. All of these kind of lanes, if I get out of that lane, I lose my audience very quickly. Yeah. So what I'm working on versus what I'm sort of an influencer on really are two different things. And so what has it done for me? In some arenas, a lot visibility wise, but as far as how I make my living in the business, it's totally different. Yeah, actually, that's the same thing. Um, you know, this company pro uh, claims itself as the 21st century company. And then we went into a consulting engagement. They're working on COBOL programs. So <laughs> what you see out there and what really happens under the cover. As okay, said, was that Bank of America? Business, they may want you to build a server. <laughs> yeah. Are we talking about Bank of America? Because that's sounding you know, I don't very name, name bankish, yeah, yeah. finance-ish. Yeah, financial services. <laughs> yep. so anyway, hey, with that, uh, Win, thank you very much. Um, thank you. Thank you both for having me and for the great questions. I'm sorry I rambled on a few of them. I hope I, I, hope I gave you some good, some no, good answers good. and gave everybody some good, good insights. Yeah. Thank you for your time today, Vin. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to today's episode. If you liked what you heard today and would like to hear more, please subscribe to our podcast on your favorite player like iTunes and Spotify. And please do rate our podcast. Also, please go to our website, www.datatransformerspodcast.com for more episodes, blogs, and information on our speakers. Thank you.